0: Welcome to the podcast, Don't Forget Me, about the life and times of Scott Stevens and the Cavaliers. Chapter 12. From the Rolling Stone on February 22, 2021, originally published November 2017 and updated, the rope: The Forgotten History of Segregated Rock and Roll Concerts by Steve Knopper. One night in the late 1950s, the Flamingos bus pulled up to a concert hall in Birmingham, Alabama, and a row of 30 to 50 police officers holding rifles and billy clubs was waiting for them. The cops escorted the six-member doo-wop group, famous for I Only Have Eyes for You and The Ladder of Love, to its dressing room and gave strict instructions As black performers, they were to make eye contact with only the black fans, who were confined to the balcony, and not with whites on the floor. It was ridiculous, recalls Terry Johnson, a member of the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame inducted group. The cops were up there making sure we did not look at any white person. It was a rule when we came in. I don't want to see any of you darkies looking at the white women out there. If you do, your ass is mine. Cruel things like that. The Flamingos, like all African American performers from that era, had to contend with Jim Crow absurdities. Often, they couldn't stay at hotels. They were Rotten food at white restaurants And were outright banned from others They would instead drive out of the way To eat at black friends' homes But that Birmingham performance stayed with Johnson We were personalities To say you can't look at someone who's smiling and applauding for you, he tells Rolling Stone, it was hard. I'll never forget that. In the 50s and 60s, black performers found themselves on the front lines of the battle over segregation. The clashes at lunch counters, schools, and on buses have been well-documented, but reporters weren't exactly covering James Brown club shows back then, so we're reliant on survivors' biographies and oral recollections for the details. As the original rock and roll pioneers are fading out, both Fats Domino and Chuck Berry died in 2017, and Little Richard died in 2020, and most of the members of groups like the Flamingos are gone it's more important than ever to share their stories rock and roll with its mixture of white country music and black r&b arrived just as segregationists were tightening jim crow laws in response to the civil rights movement entertainers throughout the south were forced to participate in a crowd separation ritual venues could be unofficially classified black or white new orleans famous Drop in catered to an exclusively african-american crowd for example but in other cases police and promoters physically separated the audiences. Sometimes, as in the Flamingo show, blacks were in the balcony and whites were on the floor. Other times, a painted line ran down the center of the theater or a rope bifurcated the audience. In 1955, Barry performed at the Duval Armory in Jacksonville, Florida and recalled in his autobiography just before they were to open the doors for the spectators. Four of the maintenance guys came out and roped off the armory with white window cord. They looped it and tied it to each seat down the center aisle, making it an off-limits zone that neither colored nor whites could tread. Barry also wrote that he once showed up for a Knoxville, Tennessee concert only to find a group of white men had replaced him with a local cover band. It's a country dance and we had no idea that Maybelline was recorded by a Negro man, one said. Historically, some concert segregation laws have been haphazardly enforced, depending on the state and the racial attitudes of local officials and police officers. The International Sweethearts of Rhythm, an interracial all-woman jazz group, managed to get away with integrated concerts when they toured the South in the 1940s, although they were occasionally turned away from entire towns and members of were hauled to prison. There may have been more potential leeway and latitude and a little bit of a blind eye being turned prior to 1954 to 1955, says Brian Ward, a Northumbria University professor in England and author of 1998's Just My Soul Responding, Rhythm and Blues, Black Consciousness, and Race Relations. The South begins to mobilize in a much more concerted way. These laws of massive resistance. The laws get tightened up, coinciding with federal law decisions. In 1957, cops interrupted a biracial jam session at New Orleans Preservation Hall and arrested all the musicians. The judge told an assembled courthouse crowd, according to several who were in the audience, we don't want Yankees coming down to New Orleans mixing cream with our coffee. In the early 50s, Lloyd, Laudie Miss Claudie, Price, performed in Raleigh, North Carolina, and was delighted to see blacks and whites dancing to his songs, until a white policeman stopped the music and stretched a rope down the middle of the dance floor. It started happening a lot, Price, now 84, says. The rope was up in a lot of places. Whichever was the largest crowd, that was their dance. If it was more blacks, it'd be a black dance. And if it was more whites, it'd be a white dance. We experienced it in Atlanta, Georgia, says Sonny Turner, 78, the only surviving member of the Platters. Another Hall of Fame doo-wop group, famous for The Great Pretender and Only You. We would go out and just walk around the street and wanted to see the marquee, and we were not allowed to come into the front entrance. It wasn't just the South. Leon Hughes Sr., a member of the Coasters, remembers pulling into a scheduled show in Lincoln, Utah, anticipating a pleasant night of singing smash hits like Youngblood and Yakity Yak. He was climbing down the stairs of the bus when the promoter told them, uh, we're looking for the Coasters band. The group replied, we're the Coasters band. And the man said, I think they're white. Hughes told them, no, we're black. One of the men standing around panicked. They ain't white, he said. Let's get them out of here. The coasters returned to their bus in a hurry and left town. Some artists who appeared to challenge the color line met with violence or even death. In his autobiography, band leader and Willie and the Hand Jive hitmaker, Johnny Otis, who was white, recalls watching helplessly as a musician in his group was brutally beaten for neglecting to say sir in response to a white man's question at an Augusta, Georgia concert in 1951. The late Jackie Wilson played a 1960 package show with several top singers in Little Rock, Arkansas, and when he realized they were scheduled to play two shows, first for blacks, then for whites, he pulled out of the second one. White residents brandished guns and chased Wilson's entourage out of town. One of the performers, Jesse Belvin, who had a big radio hit with Goodnight My Love and co-wrote Earth Angel, accelerated his 59 Cadillac so suddenly that his tires blew. The car swerved and he and his wife Died in the wreck. Before he died in 2018, Charles Neville of the Neville brothers recalls this harrowing story. In 1959, three young white women regularly tried to outsmart Jim Crow at the Dewdrop Inn in New Orleans. Blending into the all-black audience, they wore dark makeup and glasses, and one covered her blonde hair with a bandana. One night, when Neville and house musician Guitar Red stepped outside for a break, New Orleans police handcuffed them to a telephone pole, hauled out the women, and asked, what the hell are you doing? Neville watched as the cops beat the women so badly, they had to go to the hospital. Oh, Lord, he says, we thought they were going to kill us. But in the era of Elvis, Chuck, and Little Richard, a curious thing started to happen. Rock and roll shows became so boisterously biracial that it was sometimes impossible for officials to fully segregate them. Some recall the cops simply throwing up their hands. A lot of places had the line when we first walked in, and after we started playing, they let them cross the line. The Coasters Hughes says, it was beautiful. At the height of Jim Crow, young whites and blacks found ways to breach the separation. After the first intermission, the kids were all dancing together, Price says. I just kept playing my music and the kids kept coming. They were rebelling through dance. Through a beat I'd created, they started realizing we're all human. In his authorized 1985 biography, Little Richard gives himself credit for single-handedly bringing segregated audiences together. We were breaking through the racial barrier, he wrote. Richard's producer, H.B. Barnum, recalled, When I first went on the road, there were many segregated audiences, and most times, before the end of the night, they would all be mixed together. Courageous musicians, white and black, contributed to concert desegregation, which continued in some places even after it was outlawed by 1964's Civil Rights Act. In 1961, Ray Charles canceled a scheduled show in Augusta because it was at the segregated Bell Auditorium. The Beatles refused to play segregated menus on their 1965 U.S. tour. The Playboy Club in New Orleans had an integrated jazz band in the 60s, and owner Hugh Hefner had enough money and clout to threaten legal fights against any who tried to stop it. These types of acts help sway the public against Jim Crow, but it's perilous to think the power of Chuck Berry was somehow going to bring down segregation, says Ward, the Northumbria professor. It was the Civil Rights Act which, among other things, specifically prohibited discrimination in any motion picture house, theater, concert hall, sports arena, stadium, or other place of exhibition or entertainment that deserves most of the credit. There are so many examples of the Klan loving black music, and as soon as the show is over, They'd put their hoods back on. Ward says, if a shared passion for certain kinds of music was the key to racial harmony, then the world would be a lot different.
1: Hey, boy! Hey, boy!
2: Hey! Hey, what you doing, man? Cut it. Hey, what you going? What you going to do? That ain't the piece we supposed to play. Come on. Well, I guess I better get on in here with it. Your big head so hard. I love you. Love you just the same. I love. son, Caldonia's bad for your morale, son. Keep away from her. But Mama didn't know I was in love with Caldonia. So I'm going down to Caldonia's house and ask her just one more time. Caldonia! Caldonia! What make your big head so That's actually Louis Jordan with Caledonia. There's another version of that song that's important, and that is the Erskine Hawkins version. (laughs) ¶¶
1: Long-leaning like lanky, ain't had nothing to eat But I love her Love her just the same I'm crazy about that woman Cause Caldonia is her name Caldonia, Caldonia What makes your big head so hot? I love you, love you just the same I'm crazy about that
3: woman called Caldonia is her name
1: Thank you.
2: It's important because in all the debate of the origins of rock and roll, one thing that is not debatable is that the first time we hear this type of music really talked about in print is Billboard referencing Erskine Hawkins' version of that song. And that's the moment that rock and roll became rock and roll. It wasn't jump bass anymore. It, wasn't, it, wasn't, it stopped being race music at that moment. It took it a little while for the music industry to catch on that this was going to be the thing. But that all ties back into the Cavaliers because they're in the shadows of the music industry, but they're not operating under the auspices of of, of being part of the music industry yet. They're just singing and and making music.
1: Um, And so that that they know, give the younger kids uh, an idea of what they don't want to go back to. right.
3: And it's not a polemical, but, it, but I do think that the key to understanding something unique and um, specific about, at the intersection of people who are surviving different kinds of hardships, who, who are the, the generations who are, you know, following people who've survived a number of different kinds of hardships. Fine. Like, you guys came together, and I, I, that's something that I think is crucial, you know, even just based on the name of the book, um, to understanding it. We, it's not a simple thing to describe, right. but I'm interested in your experience of that and how you would describe what that felt like. The folks that, like, the nature of you guys pulled together a group that what, didn't look like other groups. And well, here, even even before that, even early yeah. on, when you first met right. the guys, you know, you said the projects were predominantly, you you were predominantly white, but there were these black kids. Mm-hmm. So, what was the the feeling from you personally, from your family, from the um, school from the projects in general towards these black kids and towards you Jewish kids. Okay,
1: here's here's the basic reason that I feel the way I, I do, and I think most Jewish kids felt the way they did. We walked in their shoes. We walked in their shoes as a people, and I think that um, that's a unique experience. Having walked in their shoes, that's why we felt an affinity towards the African American community. We knew what they were going through because we've gone through it for five thousand years. So that's that's the, and that's the motivation, and that's 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 basically my attitude. And where I came from when I when I when I talk to African Americans, I, I talk to them as as person that I identify with. And and accept because I know what they're going through because my people have gone
3: through it. Hmm. That's the heart of the whole thing, as far as mm-hmm. I'm concerned. Mm-hmm. The heart of the and, and the fact that music was this universal language that didn't see color. Right. And
1: mm-hmm. and as a unifying force, it brings people together. Well, you know, but, but you know, music has a two-edged sword. Mm-hmm. Uh, there is there's certainly a lot of music that can be, uh, that can divisive. go the other way, mm-hmm. in stirring people up. But um, in in, um, in the Jewish tradition, and in all of the songs and the ballads and the you know the songs of David going back ages and ages and ages, it wasn't about hate. It wasn't about um, destruction. Mm
3: -hmm.
1: It was about life.
3: Can we talk about some of the uncomfortable moments where maybe they wanted to jettison— I don't know if this even happened, but the moments where you felt uncomfortable, like, this is holding me back. The fact that I've got these guys, they want me, they want me, Steve, but they don't want these other guys. Like— what was that like, or was there times where they were like, "Hey, we can go on Apollo, and like you're holding us back"? Did, were there moments like that, or was it no, you guys were just sort I, of I, not feeling that? Well,
1: they, they wanted us to—they wanted us to tour down south. I said no. Mm-hmm. Aside from them not wanting us as an integrated group, when the opportunity came for us to go, and they told us that, well, by the way, you know, the, you can't stay at the same hotels as they stay at, you can't eat where they stay at, I said, "Well, I'm not going." Mm-hmm. Period. You know, some people might say, "Well, I, 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 didn't, you know, I wasn't successful because I didn't want it that bad." No, I wanted it. I wanted it bad, but I didn't want it bad enough to to to, to, to uh, distort and and um, uh, go away from my principles and my and my ideals.
3: It's all your soul, right? Yeah. And what was that like for the black members of the group? Were they like, ah, we can do it, we're used to this, we can frickin' deal with the South, we can um, stay in a different hotel? Were they like, eh, They probably <laughs> would've,
1: but I, I, would, I wouldn't have any part of it, you know? But, you know, music meant so much more to African American kids in the, in the 50s. Um, there was no basketball for African Americans, there was no football, mm-hmm. it was a street game. There was no money in that. The only, there were three ways to make money, drugs, Numbers, gambling, um, illegal gambling, and numbers, and music. Um, and most of them took music. Mm. You, know, prior, you know, contrary to to, to prior, but to the other beliefs, most of them took music, mm. and most of them with successful music. That was their way out of the ghetto. So they'll they'll go wherever they have to go, and they'll do whatever they have to do. But and and they'll put up with all the slings and the barbs and the and the arrows. And the unfortunate part is that most of these African-American kids, when they, even when they had hit material and were very successful, didn't earn a dime. It was taken away from them. Even, their, even their, the money that they deserve is taken away from them. A lot of black artists today that have had hits in the past, the only way they're able to survive is on doing shows. Uh, uh, local theaters all over the United States, or wherever they can perform, and not making anything off their music
3: e- in that in that time period, and not that things have improved all that much. But even that time period, you more so they were they were put in that position than other artists because you know the lore is that in that industry, especially at that time, everybody was being robbed. But, oh yeah. E- but even more so, oh, yes. African American artists.
1: I would think so. I would, you know, there were equal opportunity abusers when it came to stealing material. And I, I had it. Uh, Jay Siegel from the Tokens, a friend of mine. We were talking, we both, have the, we both had material written uh, for us by um, George Weiss. George Weiss did uh, You're Only on Once that I did on my CD. And he also uh, is one of the authors of "Lion Sleeps Tonight. Mm-hmm. Well, it turns out that Jay did contribute to that song and um, even tried to fight it in court, but lost because it was too old a case for him to get any royalties based mm-hmm. on the song. Now, it's an, it's an old African folk song, but the lyrics and some of the melody uh, were, uh, were put together by other people. George Weiss is supposedly one of them, but we're not, We're really not sure. I mean, when I wrote Dance, 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 when I saw the record label, it was Glazer Martin. Mm-hmm. Who was Martin? Martin was the record company. Mm-hmm.
3: Hmm. Well, what are the ongoing conversations in music, I think, are about sort of like... Elvis and the Beatles, like, John Lennon was a huge blues fan, you know, Elvis certainly was Memphis-informed yeah. and blues-informed, and that—one what's one of the things I think is interesting about this story is the fact that it's one of the things, other than, like, the emotional core of your experience mm-hmm. and the music you made, and I'm very much—I'm I'm very attracted to your experience of leaving music and coming home to music— and finding it a home again. I think that's a, be- a really beautiful story. But there's something different about an integrated band at the time you were performing. Mm-hmm. It's, it is it, contrary to the larger musical conversation, which I think persists to this day, about sort of like appropriation. Mm-hmm. Um, you guys were collaborating. Yeah. And I want to know about, were you close friends? Were you not? Was there Were there... Um, did it feel did you feel those rifts or was it just like you and your best friends
1: it was it was it was me and my best friends i mean uh, jackie morgan wasn't my best friend mm-hmm. but he was he was a part of the choir we we i probably hung out with more of my white friends than i did jackie or, mm-hmm. or john before we started singing uh, but that still didn't enter into any decision about whether they're going to be part of a group or not. Sure. They but once you were a group— in, They were just kids in the neighborhood. Sure. You know, there was no color. You, I talk, people talk about black and white. I, I hate when they—I'm they, well, in insurance and you you have to put down whether you're Caucasian or, or black or whatever— uh, White is... The, that's white, okay? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You're not white. I'm not white. Mm-hmm. What we are is a lighter shade of black, because we all came out of Africa. You got it. So we're a lighter... That's a, that's a great title for a new song.
0: <laughs> there you go. We got,
1: we
2: got it. <laughs> uh, you get reminded of just how fragile some of these stories are. Today, they put all these disclaimers on things to make old stories, cartoons, movies palatable for new audiences but there's still this element of people and time and place that's been lost and I thought doing all of this in some small way was my way of making sure the story was heard but also of making sure that it wasn't lost capturing The important parts of this, there's going to come a time really soon where it wouldn't even be possible. And that, while it's very true in this story, it's true for many, many stories and many people. Once you lose that time and those people and that place. If you haven't preserved it, at least for posterity's sake, you can't get it back. Because of the way, if you listen to those dates and times in the 50s and the
0: 60s, because of the way the world was, a lot of it is already gone. Thanks for joining us. This is Don't Forget Me, a podcast about Scott Stevens and the Cavaliers. Music and words are adapted with the permission of Scott Stevens and the Cavaliers. We hope you'll continue with us on the rest of this limited series and musical adventure. Check the show notes to find out more about Scott Stevens and the Cavaliers.